There are hundreds of open cases in Texas. As you know, the courts have been largely closed. No, there's closed not. Because there's not. There's not. There's the not. Investigations there's are what they are. Let me say there's this not hundreds. About what Texas has you may been be doing. talking about complaints, which anyone can file. There are not hundreds yeah. of open cases. Good journalism. Well done, Brianna Keller. Well done. Is that how you say your name? Yes. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. Oh, I'd like to visit. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio. Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, which is also Radio for Humans, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast today. You know, for those not old enough to remember, there was it, and I don't know if this includes you or not, Desi Doyen, <laughs> but there was a day when, you know, after Memorial Day, the summer news cycle, particularly coming out of Washington, D.C., got really, really slow until, until pretty much until after Labor Day in late summer. Uh, and, you know, talk show hosts like myself would uh, would reach for things to cover. What can we f- possibly talk about until the news starts up again this fall? Well, these days are apparently not those days because it seems like nothing slows down. Nothing slows down anymore. Yeah, no, not when there's a slow motion coup going on. Yeah, even with that uh, other guy out of office, things do not slow down anymore, uh, it seems, not ever. So with a whole bunch of stuff going on, uh, let's see how much of it we can actually get to today. Uh, starting with some, I want to start with some seemingly good news, and then we will devolve as usual. I suspect as the show goes on, uh, culminating, by the way, in Desi's latest green news report. Yay! Though there's at least some a bit of a very bit. good news in 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 the GNR as we well. We always manage to find a little ray of sunshine. Which we try <laughs> very little. All right. Anyway, let's start here with with what must be good news. I think I'm pretty I'm pretty sure. Even if I still remain cautious about all of this, but the rate of new COVID infections in the U.S. has now become so low that the uh, Axios, the news outlet, as of today announced they are discontinuing, as of today, their weekly U.S. COVID pandemic map. Hmm. 
That seems like good news. Yeah. The U.S., Axios is reporting today, has brought new coronavirus infections down to the lowest level since March, March of 2020, when the pandemic began. Nearly every week for the past 56 weeks, Axios uh, says they have tracked the change. More often than not, the increase in new COVID-19 infections, but those case counts are now so low, they report. The virus is so well contained, they claim, that today's map will be their final weekly map. The U.S. averaged roughly 16,500 new cases per day over the past week, which actually sounds like a lot of new infections to me. But in fact, it is a 30 percent improvement over the week before. It's a drop of almost one third from the week prior. New cases declined overall in 43 states and held steady in the other seven. In case, by the way, you're interested in the seven states where rates are not dropping this week, but at least are not increasing in general. Well, there's my old home state of Missouri. Come on, Missouri. <laughs> Get with the program. Get with it, man. Uh, of course, I point that out because I'm going to be talking about Desi's home state of Texas later. So oh, yeah. sorry. So just to, oh, you know, yeah. make things even. <laughs> Arizona. Why am I not surprised about that? Wyoming, Montana, Washington State, Washington, D.C. as well, apparently, Hawaii and Vermont, which, though it's not decreasing in Vermont, I think it, it currently only has an average uh, cases in Vermont of 15 a day. Oh, OK. So, so relatively yeah, very small. We will give them a pass here. Everyone else, get to work. Uh, you know, they got vaccines for this thing now. Just saying. And they're free. The good news uh, remains uh, that the official case counts haven't been this low since Americans went into lockdown in March of last year when the pandemic was still new. So uh, no one knew how long all of this would go on and inadequate testing at the time meant that cases were undercounted back then. Presumably, then, there is less undercounting now. So in theory, the real number of infections... If the official count is pretty much the same as it was last March, uh, the real number of infections right now is even lower than it was back in March of 2020 when this thing began. Overall, roughly 33 million Americans, however, that's about 10 percent of the population, have tested positive for COVID-19 over all of this time. About 595,000 people have died from the virus in the U.S. to date, making it deadlier for Americans than the past 80 years of wars and other armed military conflicts combined. That includes World War II. Mm. Turns out, uh, contrary to some guy who was the president of the United States recently, uh, when he said it, the coronavirus was not, in fact, a big hoax. But where uh, 16,000 500 new infections per day over the past week might sound like a lot uh, after cities and businesses began shutting down during the first peak last March. And by summer, cases had climbed to more than 65,000 per day on average and hospitals in many parts of the country had become overwhelmed. 
That failure, uh, as bad as it was then, was eclipsed over the winter when hundreds of thousands of people per day were contracting the virus in the U.S. and deaths had climbed to more than 3,000 per day. For now, though, the U.S. has finally gotten the virus down to a level that just about every expert agrees is safe, at least according to Axios. Fewer than 20,000 cases per day spread across the U.S. population of 331.5 million people, they note, is a relatively low number of cases. And that number continues to improve across the board uh, seemingly each week now, to the point where Axios doesn't even feel they need to continue publishing their map. New York, for example, which bore the brunt of the virus's arrival in the U.S., they now average about 800 new cases per day. That's in a state of some 20 million people, however. Here in California, the largest state in the union, we're seeing fewer than 1,000 new cases a day now. We had just 28 deaths yesterday here in the state, but it's a state with 40 million people where more than 63,000 have been killed over the past year. So 28 deaths is too many, but um, boy, is it better than where we were. Washington, D.C. now has only about 28 new cases per day as well. But obviously, they are much, much smaller than California, just to give you an idea of how well California is actually doing in comparison to uh, other places around the country. Florida. (laughs) No surprise here. Florida has more total cases per day, about 1,800 of them on average. Wow than any other state because, you know, of course they do. But again, even there, that's spread over a state with over 20 million people and its numbers are improving like uh, like most of the rest of the country. Florida's daily case counts fell uh, by 25 percent just this past week. So even good news out of Florida for a change. Uh, But now, at least according to Axios, and I do hope they're right, the virus is really under control, they say. Nationwide and in every state, thanks almost entirely to vaccines. Just over half of American adults are now fully vaccinated, according to the CDC. The vaccines do appear to work very much so. They've brought cases to the lowest point yet. And because that improvement is the result of vaccines, there is no reason, they say, to believe the virus will start gaining significant ground again anytime soon at least until those vaccines begin to wear off, if they do, a timeline for which none of us really have. The U.S. was never able to control the virus without those vaccines, and current statistics show that it still cannot. The risk is still about as high as it has ever been for unvaccinated people. That, according to a recent Washington Post report, An average of about 500 Americans per day are still dying from COVID. Almost all of them are unvaccinated. Uh, So if you haven't got your shots yet, please do. If you know someone who hasn't gotten their shots yet, please encourage them politely to do so. Kindly offer them a ride. Do whatever you can to convince them. Yeah, to help them uh, make it as easy as possible for them to go ahead and get vaccinated. Because especially if you can remind them that they're not just, you know, helping themselves, they're protecting the vulnerable people that they love who they can also infect and harm. 
And with the rates of vaccination now flagging, the White House is making a push to get still more vaccinated any way that they can think of at this point prior to the 4th of July. Uh, to meet it's uh, Joe Biden's goal of inoculating some 70 percent of the population. I don't want to see the country that is already too divided become divided in a new way between places where people live free from fear of COVID and places where when the fall arrives, <clears throat> death and severe illnesses return. Biden announced on Wednesday that a, a month of action to urge more Americans to get vaccinated before the July 4 holiday, including an early summer sprint of incentives and a slew of new steps to ease barriers and make getting shots more appealing to those who have not received them. Uh, the more we get vaccinated, the more success we're going to have in the fight against the virus this year, said Biden from the White House. He predicted that with more vaccinations, America will soon experience, quote, a summer of freedom, a summer of joy, a summer of get togethers and celebrations and all American summer. Sounds like fun. <clears throat> it does. Getting a little teary, just saying it. <laughs> uh, the Biden administration, according to Courtney Rao, the uh, director of strategic communications and engagement for the White House COVID-19 uh, response team, she sees June as, quote, a critical month in our path to normal. Biden plan uh, Biden's plan will continue to use public and private sector partnerships this month, mirroring the whole of government effort he deployed to make vaccines more widely available just after taking office. The president said he was, quote, pulling out all of the stops to drive up the vaccination rate. Meanwhile, while cases and deaths continue to drop in the U.S., at least for now, cases and deaths are still soaring around the world, especially in the developing world. And the Biden administration has been facing consistently mounting pressure to export more vaccines around the world. Well, today they announced they will be doing exactly that. The White House on Thursday laid out a plan for the U.S. to share surplus COVID-19 vaccine doses with the world and said it would lift some restrictions to allow other countries to buy U.S.-made supplies for vaccine production more easily. Biden said the U.S. would share the vaccines without expectation of political favors in return. <laughs> what a concept. Yeah, right? Biden has pledged to share some 80 million COVID-19 vaccines internationally this month alone, starting immediately with 25 million uh, doses going out right away, according to Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, today. We're sharing them in a wide range of countries within Latin America and the Caribbean, South and Southeast Asia, and across Africa in coordination with the African Union. This includes prioritizing our neighbors here in our hemisphere, including countries like Guatemala and Colombia, Peru and Ecuador, and many others. Through uh, the COVAX International Vaccine Sharing Program, some uh, 6 million doses will go to Latin America and the Caribbean right away, 7 million to South and Southeast Asia, roughly 5 million to Africa. Just over uh, 6 million would go directly from the U.S., not through COVID, but directly from the U.S. to countries including Canada, Mexico, India, and South Korea. Um 
according to uh, the administration. So that's what's going on immediately today uh, with some 25 million doses shipping out, another 55 million to go this month. We are sharing these doses, uh, said Biden in a statement, not to secure favors or extract concessions. We're sharing these vaccines to save lives and to lead the world in bringing an end to the pandemic with the power of our example and with our values, he said. So whatever is going on, whatever will go on, uh, whatever the frustrations, and there are many of them that we have right now in this country, Lord knows, and that we cover every day here. And, you know, whatever the failings that Joe Biden may have uh, or may encounter in the days, weeks, months, years ahead, uh, allow me to just use this moment to say it is nice to have an actual, real, decent human being as president of the United States in the White House again. A statement like that, we are sharing these. Uh, we are asking for no favors, no you know concessions in return, just sharing them with the power of our example and our values. And, uh, you know, I'm sure he didn't he, you know, he's, he's not doing enough now. He didn't do this quick enough, all of that. But, you know, um, just to have someone who's decent and put out willing to put out a statement uh, that seems unimaginable from the previous administration. So, you know, we'll just take this moment to say, yeah. I'm glad he's there. Me too. It, it reminds me of the old days when I was a kid where, you know, it felt like uh, the U.S. was the good guys. And we led by our example and tried to make the world a better place with our values. So hopefully that's something that maybe we can return to. So can we just end the show here today then? <laughs> because that would be a very nice. No, I'm afraid not. Uh, but there is still uh, some more good news uh, today that is not altogether insane like so much of it. I mentioned uh, we'll, we'll have a green news report uh, coming up later. I did mention that. Yes, right? you did. OK, yeah, well, we still will. Um, but this story we, we didn't catch in time to make today's report. Uh, on our GNR yesterday, however, we reported the really, really good news about what is being described now as Black Wednesday for the fossil fuel industry last week when uh, Royal Dutch Shell and Chevron and ExxonMobil all faced really bad news from courtrooms and boardrooms all in one single day last Wednesday. Their bad news, however was great news for those of us who are, you know, concerned about global warming and our worsening climate emergency. The bad news specifically for Exxon was that a vote of uh, by shareholders, um, a vote boosted by a number of large hedge funds, had elected at least two new activist board members, which Exxon, who Exxon had opposed, uh, but they were elected anyway to help move, to help force the company toward decreasing deadly emissions in its business model. There were uh, four such activist candidates overall for the board of directors at Exxon uh, that were being pushed by these activist groups and uh, these, these rather large hedge funds. Oh, yeah. Some of the largest hedge funds in the country and the world. BlackRock, I think, was one of them that had uh, endorsed uh, uh, these I guess we call I mean, can they be called activist candidates? Is yeah, that they'd be we, activist investor shareholders, pro-climate activists. 
So Exxon had announced last week that two of those four had won seats on the board of directors at ExxonMobil, but they were still counting votes, I guess, to determine if the other two candidates had won. Apparently it was a very close election, I guess. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, now we have this today. A third climate advocate has secured a seat on the board of ExxonMobil, according to The Hill late last night. Alexander Karstner, a private equity investor from Engine Number no. 1, won a seat on ExxonMobil's board, according to preliminary results for Exxon's election of directors released by the company on Wednesday. Now, Engine Number no. 1 is a new investment firm. It's only about six months old. They have called for the company to make more significant investments in, oh my gosh, clean energy? Diversification? What? what? They will now control, uh, engine number one itself, will now control three seats on the company's 12-member board. The other two that were elected, uh, announced last week, were also from engine number one. So as of now, they'll control three seats on the Exxon board. The remaining nine slots, as of now, will be filled by Exxon nominees, Exxon the people who were supported specifically by Exxon, according to the company. So I guess that means, for now anyway, the fourth candidate lost for some reason. Though how anybody oversees these corporate elections, frankly, I have no idea. (laughs) I cover a lot of elections, a lot about elections, but when it comes to corporate elections, I have no idea how they actually work, how they should work, but I'm sure they're all terrible. Uh, Anyway, as far (laughs) as I know, Exxon does all of the counting itself. So I guess um, stop the steal. Stop this deal? Is that the preliminary results, according to The Hill, will still have to be certified, however, by an independent inspector of elections, whoever that is. So at least for now, Exxon is saying uh, three new board members. Very good news. Yes. Uh, more on uh, well, other elections, non-corporate elections. Yes, our 2020 election that is apparently still ongoing at least in Donald Trump's mind, uh, in a little bit. But some uh, more encouraging news today before we get there. Last year, uh, as Donald Trump's postmaster general, Louis DeJoy, who, by the way, is still the postmaster general even today, as, as DeJoy last year was seemingly slowing down the delivery of mail in the middle of a pandemic election in which a huge chunk of the nation was voting via absentee mail ballots, we covered a report by The Washington Post on Louis DeJoy's, let's say, questionable background as a huge Donald Trump and Republican Party supporter and fundraiser. In early September, the Washington Post had published an extensive examination of how employees at DeJoy's former company, the North Carolina-based New Breed Logistics, uh, the employees explained how they had been pressured by DeJoy or his aides to attend political fundraisers or to make contributions to various Republican candidates, and then they were paid back through bonuses that were paid to them later in the year. That, by the way, would be illegal. Such reimbursements, the paper had reported at the time, could run afoul of both state and federal laws, which prohibit straw donor schemes meant to allow wealthy donors to evade individual contribution limits and obscure the source of a candidate's money by, you know, having someone else give the money and, oh, I'll pay you back. 
DeJoy has adamantly disputed, however, that he broke the law, and uh, he was asked at a hearing last year in August by Congressman Jim Cooper, Democrat from Tennessee, if he had ever repaid executives for making donations to the Trump campaign. DeJoy responded, quote, that's an outrage claim, sir, and I resent it. The answer is no, he said. When The Post later published its report in September, Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney said that, also a Democrat from New York, uh, said the House Committee on Oversight and Reform, which she chairs, would begin an inquiry and asserted that DeJoy may have lied to the panel under oath, which is also a lie. Well, I'm sorry, also a crime. Yes. Uh, Today, the uh, Washington Post is now reporting that uh, the FBI is now investigating Postmaster General Louis DeJoy in connection with campaign fundraising, fundraising activity involving his former business, according to people familiar with uh, the matter and according to a spokesperson for DeJoy. FBI agents in recent weeks interviewed current and former employees of DeJoy and of his business, asking questions about the political contributions and company activities. Prosecutors also issued a subpoena to DeJoy himself for information, according to one of the people. A DeJoy spokesperson confirmed the investigation in a statement, but insisted DeJoy had not knowingly violated any laws. DeJoy has, uh, the statement uh, reads, uh, Mr. DeJoy has learned that the Department of Justice is investigating campaign contributions made by employees who worked for him when he was in the private sector. Goes on to say he has always been scrupulous in his adherence to the campaign contribution laws and has never knowingly violated them. So that is, of course, an important distinction and uh, one that, as we discussed last, I think it was last week in our conversation with former assistant U.S. attorney Randall Eliason in regard to various investigations of Donald Trump and the Trump Organization, one that, you know, could make one thing that makes the difference between whether uh, civil or criminal charges are brought, as according to Eliason, is if the person didn't know they were breaking the law, that might be a civil violation of the law for which they might have to pay some sort of fine or fee. Uh, Louis DeJoy is a very, very wealthy millionaire, maybe even a billionaire. I don't know if he gets hit with fine or fee. Well, no big deal. Right. But if they know that they are violating the law, somebody does violate the law on purpose. If prosecutors can show evidence that they tried to evade the law, then it becomes a criminal matter, a criminal violation. And as Eliason explained, people go to jail for criminal violations of the law. Now, we don't yet know where this investigation is going, so don't get too excited. But I would suggest it is no mistake that DeJoy's spokesperson is now highlighting that he, quote, never knowingly violated the law. Yeah, that's a key shift in rhetoric. Uh-huh. That said, uh, lying to Congress, by the way, is a criminal violation of law. So we will see where all of this goes. It's a criminal violation of law. Just ask uh, Michael Cohen. Just ask Mike Flynn. whole bunch of people who have been 
sentenced to uh, federal prison for doing exactly that. The, the Washington Post reports the inquiries could signal impending legal peril for the controversial head of the nation's mail service. Democrats accuse the prominent GOP fundraiser who personally gave more than $1.1 million to the joint fundraising vehicle of Donald Trump's re-election campaign and the Republican Party. They accused him of trying to undermine his uh, the Postal Service, uh, his own organization, because of Trump's distrusting of mail-in voting. Last year, five people who worked for New Breed Logistics, that's DeJoy's company, told the Post that they were urged by DeJoy's aid or aides or by DeJoy himself to write checks and attend fundraisers at his mansion. Two employees said that DeJoy would then inst- would then instruct that bonus payments to those employees be boosted to help defray the cost of their contributions. Post-analysis at the time of federal and state campaign finance records found a pattern of extensive donations by new breed employees to Republican candidates with the same amount often given by multiple people on the very same day. Well, that sounds suspicious. Between 2000 and uh, 2014, for example, 124 individuals who worked for the company. That's a lot of potential witnesses, by the way, (laughs) uh, who might otherwise be in trouble themselves if they don't tell the truth to prosecutors about all of this. 124 individuals from 2000 to 2014 uh, together gave more than a million dollars to federal and state GOP candidates. Many of them had never previously made political donations before, at least until they started working for DeJoy's company. That, according to post the, the Post analysis, one former employee speaking on the condition of anonymity told the Post last year, quote, he would ask employees to make contributions at the same time that he would say, I'll get it back to you down the road. That, of course, would be unlawful. At the time of the Post's report, Monty Hagler a DeJoy spokesperson uh, said that DeJoy was not aware that any employees had felt pressured to make donations and, quote, believes that he has always followed campaign fundraising laws and regulations, at least knowingly. Asked on Thursday about the development and whether President Biden believes DeJoy should now step down, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said Biden would, quote, leave the investigation and the process to the Department of Justice. There you go. Another great idea. Thank you. All right, let's take a quick break here. And, uh, oh, yeah, I hate to say it because we've been spending a lot of time on Desi's home state of Texas uh, (laughs) this week. And not always in a good way, although we did have some heroic Democrats uh, walking out of the state house late at night to block a terrible voter suppression bill. So it's not always bad when we talk about Texas. It's just mostly bad. Yeah. So Sorry. we are heading back. I feel down. like I should apologize. Yeah, you should. I think you should. <laughs> uh, we are heading back down there uh, to the Lone Star State after this break. Sorry, Desi. Uh, more trouble in Texas straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial.
Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. Oh, my exes live in Texas. <laughs> Desi, do all of your exes live in Texas? <laughs> no, they don't. They don't? No. Uh, are they all liars? <laughs> no. Because it sure seems like everybody in Texas is a liar. I'm just saying, I, you know, not your family, of course. but Of course not. Well, I've met some of your family. Anyway, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Okay, as promised, we head down to Texas with another great tale from our well-regulated militia. Unfortunately, yes, it's from Texas again. As I learned in a Daily Coast piece last night from a poster calling him or herself, I am American. It is headlined, Texas open carry without permit or training is off to a great start. What does a Texan do when a six-month-old puppy bolts out the front door? Shoot it, of course. A Houston woman saw a six-month-old puppy running down the street, so naturally, I am American says, she pulled out a gun and started shooting. And she shot her own five-year-old son. Oh, dear. Because of course she did. No one could have expected anything like this to happen after Texas passed a law allowing for the open carry of firearms without a permit or any required training. The mom, 24-year-old Angela Mia Vargas, has been charged with deadly conduct with a firearm. According to a report from ABC affiliate uh, KTRK-TV, Vargas, her son, and another family member were riding bikes down the street, apparently with a gun in her pocket, uh, when Bruno, a six-month-old boxer puppy, ran out the door of the house where it lives. The dog's owner, who, was at, who has asked not to be identified, explained, quote, I came out of my house because Bruno was barking and barking. I thought my brother was coming, so I opened the door just a little bit, and he comes running out. The bullets started flying, he said, about one second after the dog had cleared the doorway. That's terrible. ABC 13 Ugh. has a ring doorbell video uh, where you can see Bruno running out with the owner, following immediately behind. The owner can then be seen telling the dog to come back in the house. The dog ro- roams out into the street, and less than a second later, multiple shots ring out. The gunshots were then followed by extended screaming by the little boy's parents. Vargas's five-year-old son was rushed to the hospital in... Thankfully, stable condition with, thank God, non-life-threatening wounds, according to police. The boy was, however, struck in the abdomen by one of three bullets that Vargas allegedly fired from a small-caliber pistol, according to a detective with the Houston police. 
from the video, you can tell only a few seconds elapsed from from the dog running out until the gunfire began. Bruno, by the way, was grazed on one leg, but is otherwise fine. In what could be the understatement of the year, the puppy's owner, who was cited with a Class C misdemeanor for having a loose dog, uh, offered this observation, quote, she could have handled it differently. Gosh, you think? <laughs> and that is the least dumb story, frankly, that I have coming out of Texas today. You may recall that after the November 2020 presidential election, Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick offered a $1 million reward for evidence of voter fraud. It was not clear if it was uh, voter fraud in the Lone Star State or in any state. Nonetheless, he put out a $1 million reward for any tips leading to any voter fraud. So how's that search going today? Uh, this uh, after the uh, secret the state secretary of state's office called the 2020 election uh, in March uh, called the 2020 election uh, described it as having been quote smooth and secure that during testimony I believe at the Texas State House uh, in March and as Republicans in that same state house over this past weekend attempted to adopt what voting rights advocates have called the most restrictive new voter suppression law to be advanced this year since the 2020 election. And that is saying something, considering all the laws that have already passed that we've covered on this show in Iowa, in Georgia, which has brought a whole bunch of lawsuits, including one full disclosure in which I am a, uh, a plaintiff uh, in Florida and elsewhere. Well, thankfully, as we reported earlier this week, that Texas bill, for now at least, was blocked when Democratic lawmakers in the Texas House walked out of the building entirely near the end of this year's legislative session over the weekend. That deprived Republicans who dominate both the Senate and House there, uh, deprived them from having the quorum that they would need to uh, give the final passage, the final vote on this bill before sending this anti-voting law to Governor Greg Abbott. But uh, so that was stopped for now. But the governor, Abbott, vows that it will be back for passage in an emergency session. It's an emergency, Desi, that they pass this (laughs) this bill. An emergency session. He's going to call for the legislature uh, at some point. He hasn't yet, presumably in the near future, when uh, he has already demanded that Senate Bill 7 or SB 7 will be, quote, a must pass bill for that emergency session. SB 7, according to state Republicans, is needed to prevent voter fraud in the state. You know, the voter fraud that Lieutenant Governor Patrick offered $1 million for evidence of, but has still not paid out. You would think with all of that fraud, someone would want to claim that $1 million. Well, apparently there have yet to be any takers for it, uh, but that may be because there appears to be so little fraud in Texas. At the end of uh, 2020, the office of Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton who, by the way, I am uh, required to report whenever I talk about Ken Paxton. You know what I'm going to say, Des? You yes. You know what I'm going to report? What I believe I, I do. That he is under indictment. Yes, he is. He's under indictment for multiple felony counts of what? Securities fraud. The Texas Attorney General. Somehow he has managed for the past six years, even though he is charged with these multiple felonies, 
Somehow he's managed to avoid a trial so far, even though he's actually still under indictment for that fraud. In any event, Paxton's office spent a, a whole lot of time last year trying to root out voter fraud if not securities fraud, apparently, uh, in Texas. As the Houston Chronicle reported at the end of last year in Texas, the Texas Attorney General's office spent nearly twice as much time working on voter fraud cases in 2020 than it did compared to 2018. They logged more than 22,000 staff hours. Nonetheless, they resolved just 16 minor prosecutions, which is half as many as two years earlier back in 2018, according to records. All 16 of those cases involved Houston residents who gave false addresses on their voter registration forms. Nobody served any jail time for any of it. 16 minor cases out of 11 million votes that were cast in Texas last year, zero jail time for any of them. Attorney General Ken Paxton, who has made the hunt for voter fraud a top priority of his office, according to the Chronicle, gave the Election Integrity Unit access to eight additional law enforcement uh, sergeants last year on top of the nine already assigned to it and doubled the number of prosecutors, according to records that were obtained uh, from the agency by a non uh, nonprofit government watchdog named American Oversight a group which shared those documents with the Chronicle. In its 15 years of its existence, the voter fraud unit in Texas has prosecuted a few dozen cases, as the Chronicle notes, in which offenders served some jail time. None of them, zero of them, involved widespread fraud. Paxton's approach to the issue is the same as that of other top uh, other top Texas Republicans. They note, including Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, Mr. Million Dollars and Governor Greg Abbott, Mr. Emergency Session to stop this voter fraud. Uh, that approach, uh, the Chronicle notes, is to relentlessly insist voter fraud is a major concern while citing no actual evidence that it is prevalent. University of Texas law professor Joe Fishkin said this is not the only voter fraud effort to pour in a lot of resources and end up with a relatively small number of cases found. He was referring to the Trump administration's own Voting Integrity Commission, which disbanded in 2018 after finding no evidence of widespread fraud. Finding very few defendants, he said, uh, even if they can charge some with multiple offenses, is consistent with the possibility that, hey, there just isn't that much fraud to prosecute. Multiple, uh, multiple academic studies and journalistic reviews have also uncovered no evidence of widespread voter fraud, nor did a wide-ranging investigation of election fraud conducted by Donald Trump's own U.S. Justice Department in the 2020 election. You will recall, before he resigned, largely for saying so, that Donald Trump's Attorney General Bill Barr acknowledged that investigators, quote, had not seen fraud on any scale that could have affected a different outcome in the election. This week, after the weekend drama in Texas with Democratic lawmakers walking out to block the bill, Washington Post's Philip Bump noted all of that drama can obscure the central point. There is no evidence of any rampant fraud in Texas 
or anywhere else, meaning the purported rationale for the legislation does not even exist. From 2015 to 2020, he notes, a period during which more than 44 million votes were cast for presidents and presidential and gubernatorial races in Texas and for constitutional measures alone, there were only 197 complaints of election fraud filed with the state. That's from 2015 to 2020 and more than 44.1 million ballots cast during that time. I just want to make sure I understand those numbers yeah. correctly. So yeah. since 2015, yeah. 44 million votes cast yeah, right. in Texas, yeah. 197 complaints. complaints. That's right. Only 23 of those complaints, by the way, we're from the 2020 election. <laughs> Yet, the Office of uh, Attorney General Ken Paxton devoted more than 22,000 hours to tracking down fraud cases last year. The result was 16 minor cases that he closed out around Houston. Gosh, I wonder what those resources could have gone to in investigating maybe some actual crimes that did not get investigated. Like securities fraud? For example... As the uh, legislature con considered new legislation focused on fraud, writes Bump, the head of the election fraud department in Paxton's office claimed the number of fraud cases was, quote, higher than our historical average by a <laughs> long shot, with 43 defendants in court. However, as the Houston Chronicle fact check reported, only one of those pending cases actually stem from the 2020 election in which more than 11 million Texans cast ballots. Nonetheless, back in April of this year, the Texas GOP's effort to roll back voting rights was coming together with the introduction in the state house of SB7 uh, after increased turnout in last year's elections, the increase was particularly noticeable in and around Houston, thanks to Harris County's innovative new methods uh, for voting in a state which has one of the lowest turnout rates in the country. Houston offered drive through voting, 24-hour voting centers, among other innovations. Uh, just those two alone, drive through and 24-hour voting centers, resulted in about 140,000 voters using those methods, both of which will now be outlawed if the uh, new Texas voter suppression bill is able to be jammed through. So in April, as that bill was beginning to come together, uh, its author, Senator Brian Hughes, uh, Texas state senator, claimed a half a dozen times during a CNN interview that the, uh, the attorney general's office had 400 open voter fraud cases. Hughes said that's the fact. It's documented. There's no question about it. Yet, as the once again Houston Chronicle reported, that number was actually almost 10 times larger than the number of people with actual pending voter fraud charges in Texas, uh, which was, as we've noted, just 43, not 400. And only one from 2020. Correct. So they have been doing this now for some time. They keep inflating the number to try to pretend there are more uh, cases of voter fraud out there than there actually are, even by their own official counts. That brings us up to Wednesday uh, this week when the uh, same Texas Senator Brian Hughes once again appeared on CNN to try to defend 
the fact that SB7 would disproportionately suppress the votes of people of color by claiming, oh, it wouldn't because the law affects everyone equally, which is, by the way, like that old quote. And I can't remember who said it. I'm probably screwing it up. But the old quote that the laws that prevent people from sleeping outside under bridges, that is totally fair because they affect the rich and the poor alike. So on Wednesday... After trying to claim the law affects everyone equally and was only meant to stop voter fraud, Hughes had this exchange with CNN's Brianna Keller, uh, who was having none of it. The truth is, in the way that this bill is written, you're going to have people of color, especially, who are going to not be voting. You're going to see a decrease. And I just ask, why is that when you only have 43 pending voter fraud charges in Texas, only one is from 2020? You've previously misquoted that as, I think, about 400. It's really 43. Only one is from 2020. And there were 16 minor prosecutions for 2020. It was just people putting down addresses that weren't theirs. There are hundreds of open cases in Texas. As you know, the courts have been largely closed. No, there's closed not. Because there's not. There's not. There's the not. Investigations there's investigations what they are. Let me say there's this. There's not hundreds. You, you may be doing. talking about complaints, which anyone can file. There are not hundreds yeah. of open cases. There are 43 <laughs> pending voter fraud charges in Texas. This is according to your Republican attorney general's office. There are not hundreds, sir. I'm speaking about the investigations. Courts are pretty slow now because of COVID-19. <laughs> when someone makes a complaint, we have to investigate it. We take those seriously, no matter what they're about. So there you go. That yeah. was the sponsor of the bill in Texas. That was Brianna Keller, by the way, doing a fantastic job of not allowing his BS to go unanswered there. Uh, and uh, it is for that bill by that guy that Governor Abbott is going to call his emergency session, a bill that, by the way, would make it uh, unlawful for uh, someone to drive more than two voters to the polls if they are not family members without registering with the government because, you know, they love small government in Texas, so you got to register with the government to yeah, take so much people for to the polls. Freedom of Association Clause in the Constitution. Yeah, and, of course, it makes it easier uh, in addition to everything else it does, it makes it easier to overturn lawful elections. It lowers the bar, which I think is what all of this is about. We're seeing similar provisions in other uh, laws around the country that make it easier for uh, Republicans, if they get election results they don't like, to, you know, just overturn them. These bills are, are about, you know, a lot of things, but stopping fraud is not one of them. Allowing, however, for a fraudulent result, that may be right on the money. The Green News Report is next. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. You know, by the way, I, I guess I should have uh, reminded everyone, uh, Donald Trump and, and all the Republicans, they won last year in Texas. Yeah. 
So that's the sort of thing that's going on in, 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 in states that Republicans are already doing really well. Imagine how it's going in those really tight swing states. All right. Anyway, let's get to it. Our latest Green News report. A cargo ship that was on fire for weeks off the coast of Sri Lanka is now sinking, sparking fears of major ecological disaster. Cargo ship carrying acid, oil, and plastic sinks off the coast of Sri Lanka. Man-made global warming to blame for one-third of global heat deaths, study finds. Plus, President Biden is making good on a climate change promise. Interior Department suspends oil and gas drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. All of those promises kept and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Apparently, when Bernie goes on the road, Senator Sanders staffers put together a list of Bernie's travel preferences. He required his room be kept at 60 degrees. In fact, Bernie was so adamant that the room temperature below, he would go out of his way to keep it at 60, even if it meant opening a window in winter or manually overriding the hotel's climate control system. That must have been quite a phone call to the front desk. I believe in climate change, in that we have to change the climate of this room, or else I swear to God I will sleep in the ice machine. I need to wake up feeling like a flounder in a fish market. (laughs) This is your Green News Report. Click! Okay, Desi Doyen. Sorry, long snarky comment. What do you got for us today? Well, first, a full-fledged environmental disaster is underway in Sri Lanka, where a stricken container ship carrying 25 tons of toxic nitric acid and 350 metric tons of oil has been burning for two weeks Mm. just off the coast. On Wednesday, the ship began to sink, unleashing what is becoming one of the worst ecological disasters in that country's history. Wow! Tons of tiny plastic pellets spilled from shipping containers that fell into the sea have swamped the island's coastline and fishing grounds, blanketing beaches as far as 75 miles to the south, with multiple reports of dead fish, birds, and sea turtles Mm. already washing up on shore. In climate news, a new study has calculated that more than one-third of the world's heat deaths each year are directly caused by man-made global warming. The international team of researchers examined heat deaths in more than 700 cities from 1991 to 2018, comparing observed temperatures with computer models, simulating a world without climate change, finding that nearly 40 percent of heat deaths were caused by higher temperatures intensified by human-caused global warming. In the U.S., more than a thousand heat deaths a year, or about 35 percent, were attributed to climate change. A different U.S.-only study has found that power grid failures have nearly doubled in the U.S. since 2015 and calculated that the combination of blackouts and extreme heat, quote, may be the deadliest climate-related event we can imagine when indoor temperatures rise above 90 degrees Fahrenheit. The researchers found the risk from heat exposure is highest in low-income households that can't afford air conditioning. In an interview with CBS, study author Brian Stone of Georgia Tech said cooling centers in the three major cities they studied could only accommodate about 2% of the total population. That really raises questions around what is the level of preparedness for what is a very high health risk and something that's immediate in terms of its timing. This is not, you know, decades into the future. This is this summer. I will answer that question. We're not prepared at all. 
Another new analysis finds that the record winter storm that devastated Texas in February, causing a massive power outage, killed hundreds more people than the official state tally. A new analysis conducted by BuzzFeed News calculated that the true number of people killed by the storm and the blackout is likely four or five times higher Mm. than the 100 or so deaths the state has officially acknowledged so so far. We're talking about hundreds killed. Yes, Intensifying drought spreading across the U.S. West has set in motion water cutbacks on the Colorado River. Some cutbacks to Arizona and Nevada had already begun, but late last week, the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation warned Arizona and Nevada to brace for further cuts. Sparse snowpack this winter melted quickly during the hot, dry spring, producing little runoff, helping to deplete reservoirs across the region. Lake Powell on the Colorado River is at just a third of its capacity. Lake Mead near Las Vegas is at just 38 percent of capacity. If it falls to 22 percent, Arizona will lose its entire allotment. Wow. Finally, some good news. Thank you. The Biden Interior Department has suspended all Trump-era oil and gas leases in Alaska's pristine Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, pending a reassessment of environmental impacts of drilling in the region. The department suspended nearly a dozen leases on the grounds that Trump officials rushed the lease auction and did not follow proper procedures, including required environmental reviews violating the National Environmental Policy Act. The suspension will require a new environmental analysis, which will be time-consuming and is also likely to spark a lengthy court battle. Bring it on. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Way up north. North to Alaska. Way up north. So, so Biden has stopped the leases uh, in Anwar. Uh, stopped the new leases, or stopped even the old ones under uh, Trump? They're, they're all leases. There were no old leases. This was the first time ever that Republicans finally succeeded in their decades-long quest to destroy the Anwar, the National Wildlife Refuge, which is supposed to be a refuge for wildlife. And Joe Biden ruined all their fun. Yes, he did. Womp, well, we'll womp. see. Hopefully it'll stick and uh, we'll we will see. make it through any losses. On that water story, by the way, I know that we didn't have time to talk about California, yes. where we're having some very serious water problems. We're going to have to pick that up, I'm afraid, in a future Green News Report or a future <laughs> broadcast. Uh, until then, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's thrilling program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com, all of which is made possible, and I can't underscore it enough, by listeners like you. You are the only ones who keep us on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate. You can drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. I will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. North to Alaska, I go north, the rush is on. North to Alaska, I go north, the rush is on. Way up north, Alaska, way up north.